So we're going to continue on in the, some of the minor prophets today. So we're going to be studying the book of Nahum, who was a prophet. Um, last week we talked about Jonah, which hopefully you remember some of that, because we'll talk about that a little bit today. But Nahum also deals with Nineveh and the Assyrians. Nahum actually was a prophet about 100 years after Jonah. Um, but if you remember that Jonah was comfortable where he was at, where God had called him as a prophet because Israel was prospering at the time, but God had called him to go and remind the Ninevites and tell them that they were disobeying God and that if they didn't change their ways and repent and, and start observing God's commandments, that they would be punished for that. And Jonah didn't want to do that, but he eventually went and did that. And the Ninevites did... Um, hear God's word and they did repent and they did start back on that path but there's no record of how long that they actually were contrite and followed God but eventually they went back to their old ways and conquering peoples and um, doing all of the bad things that the Assyrians did they were pretty cruel and ruthless people but what we're going to study today is um, it's really about God and, and his love for us and how even though we don't always see it, wickedness gets punished, that God will not let sin go unpunished. So we talk about that today. Um, we are going to be in the book of Nahum, so we'll start off um, in chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and we'll see how the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. So Nahum, it's after the book of Micah. We'll start off uh, chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 6. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like the fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. So as we read through this, this is Nahum telling the people, um, and it's really directed, one, back to the Assyrians in Nineveh that they're going to be punished for their behavior, for being wicked. But it's also, um, the book of Nahum was meant to be an encouragement for the Jewish people because they were afflicted by the Assyrians. They were attacked by them, and um, that caused them a lot of pain and suffering. And it was, in a way, God's reminding his people that he will care for them and that he will punish those who are wicked um, it starts you know if you look um, in verse 2 it says you know a jealous and avenging God is the Lord so when you think of jealousy what what do you think of is that is jealousy a good or a bad thing generally we think jealousy is a bad thing in this context with God though um, it should be looked at as a good thing because God is the only God and there is only one God. And he 
told his people, and he tells us in his Ten Commandments, that we, he is the one true God, that we are to have no other gods before him, and we aren't supposed to have any graven images. And so that's, you know, in the Ten Commandments. If you'll actually turn back to Exodus chapter 20, we'll look at that again, because God actually describes himself as jealous. So Exodus chapter 20. This is where God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Then, the God spoke all these, then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So here, God is describing himself as a jealous God because God doesn't want anything to come between the relationship that we have with God and God himself. So when God says he's a jealous God, really what he's telling us is he doesn't want anything to come between us and God. And that's something we should strive for as believers is to keep that relationship as close and connected and pure as we can. Um, you know, and it says here that the, the Lord is avenging and wrathful because we know God does have his standards. And, and if we don't keep God's standard, if we break God's law, that's sinful and there's punishment for that behavior. It says he reserves wrath for his enemies, and the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And even as we look at the, the story of Jonah, with the book of Jonah, and we look at the book of Nahum, we see that God is slow to anger. Because God saw the wickedness of the Assyrians, and he sent Jonah to preach to them that they should stop that behavior, that they should repent from their wicked activities, and turn back to him and to worship him. And they did that for a little while. And so God in his mercy, because God, because they had sinned and they were wicked, he could have just destroyed the city right then. But he gave them the chance of sending them Jonah to have them hear the word of God again so they would stop. And they did for a while, but they'd eventually go back to their ways. And so that's what Nahum is telling them, is that you know God is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean God will not punish sin. God will punish sinful behavior. It's the same in our lives. You know, God is patient with us. And we'll wait for us to repent. And he wants us to do that. But if we don't, there will be punishment for our sinful behavior. It talks about um, the power of God. You know, where, you know, where he talks about um, there in verse 3, you know, clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. God is sovereign, and he's not just sovereign over our lives. He's sovereign over his creation. And so he can control all of those different things. And the, the Jewish people understood probably better than we do um, when it says Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Those geographic areas were very productive, fertile agricultural areas where there were you know, lots of vineyards and orchards and grain fields and they grazed their livestock. 
And so when Nahum is telling them that God is going to wither those areas, that really meant something to them. I mean, that would be famine because not enough food and those kind of things. So they're, they're seeing how God is very um, serious about this and when he's telling them what the punishment is going to look like. We'll move on here. I'm going to read um, verses 7 and 8, and we'll look how the Lord will be a stronghold for those who, who seek refuge in him. So Nahum... Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So verse 7 is really comforting. It starts out, the Lord is good. And we know that the Lord is good, but God, through Nahum, is reminding his people that even though they're going through these trials where the Assyrian people are attacking them and, and pillaging and killing people, that God still knows and God hears their cries and God will take care of them. And we should remember that, that if we will seek God out as a stronghold, God will do the same for us. Even the trials that we go through today, God will be there to protect us and guide us and preserve us, we may go through some difficult times, but God is still going to be there with us. And we know that's true. There are several different places in the Bible where God tells us that. If you uh, go back to Genesis chapter 15, this is when God had chosen Abram, and he you know, had promised Abram that he would make him... Um, his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands on the beach, that God had chosen the Jewish people, the people of Abram, to be his people. And, and he emphasizes that to Abram in Genesis 15 in verse 1. So Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, your your reward shall be very great. So when God's telling Abram and he's promising him that he's his shield, what, what does a shield make you think of? Protection. And that's what it was. You know, for soldiers back in the day, they carried a shield and a sword, and that, that shield helped to protect them. If you go look in Ephesians chapter 6, we talk about the armor of God, there's a shield referenced in there. And so... God is telling Abram in a way that he will understand that he's going to be his shield. And then he also tells him, your reward shall be very great. And he's telling Abram that God is going to be good to him. He's going to provide for him. He's going to keep all of the promises that he made. And God will do the same thing for us. If you look at Psalm 46, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So Psalm 46. It's a psalm about how God is a refuge for his people. So Psalm 46, I'll read verses 1 through 7. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. So here in this psalm, again, we can see where the, the psalmist is using all of the physical calamities that have happened and are foretold to happen in the end times. But even though all these physical things of the world that we look around that we see, you know, it talks about, um, you know, mountains slipping into the sea, you know, waters roaring, mountains are quaking, all of these different physical things we see, God is steadfast in the protection of his people. So even though we look around in our society today and we see all of the things that are happening that are very unbiblical and don't follow what God's plan is for his people, we can see that and it makes us, you know, you might think about being fearful. We wonder about all these things that should happen. But it's psalms like these that remind us to look back to God, to trust in his sovereignty, and to understand that people make choices. We all have choices to make. And as people make choices, those are either biblical choices that follow God and honor God, or they're not. And there is punishment for that. And, and this is part of what the, the Assyrians who live in Nineveh are going to find out, is that God will punish people. The last thing I want to look at is as we remember that God is our stronghold, if you'll turn to John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. So John 10, 27 to 30. This is the part of the book of John where uh, Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. And these are encouraging uh, verses for us, for us to remember that if we, if we stay with God and we remain in him as our stronghold, he'll protect us. So John chapter 10, this is Jesus speaking, starting in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here Jesus is reminding the disciples that once we become Christians when we are saved and we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. His work on the cross saves us. He's guaranteeing us eternal life. And there is no power that can undo the work of salvation in your heart. When you accept Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, nothing can undo that. No matter how terrible things get in your life on earth, we know and we have to remember that stronghold of who God is and the power he has. And he has promised us, if we believe in the name Jesus Christ, if he's our Lord and Savior, we believe in the work he did on the cross for us, we will be saved. Here again, it promises us eternal life. And it kind of goes back to all the way back to when God chose the Jewish people as his people and he promised Abram and said, you know, I am your shield, your, shield, your reward will be very great. We have the same shield that Abram had. And we have the same reward that Abram has where we will be in heaven with God for eternity. So all those things should really help us remember all of the good things that God does for us. Now, for those who are wicked and don't accept Christ as their Savior and don't obey God, they have to pay for the price of their sinful behavior. And that's what Nahum is telling the Ninevites in chapter 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. And this really is prophecy that comes true. So the city of Nineveh was a very fortified city. The wall around the city was 100 feet tall. 
and they had a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And that was their protection for the Ninevites. So do you think that's good protection? Pretty good physically for a physical army to come take Nineveh. If you think about that, 150 feet of water that's 60 foot deep and then a 100 foot wall behind that, you're going to have to work very hard to um, you know, lay siege to the city of Nineveh and to try to capture it. But because God is God and he is sovereign and he commands all the elements, um, in 612 B.C., the Tigris, you know, God causes weather to happen where the Tigris River that runs right next to the city of Nineveh floods. And it floods and washes out enough of the wall that the Babylonians can breach the moat and the wall and they go in and completely slaughter the Assyrians in Nineveh. So this prophecy that Nahum is giving here from what God says will happen actually does happen. And where it says that um, he will make a complete end of its sight, um, this happened in 612 BC. Nobody found any traces of the city of Nineveh until 1842 AD. Some archaeologists found where the old city of Nineveh was. So it was about 2,000 years to find any trace of the city of Nineveh after the flood and after the Babylonians came in and attacked Assyrians in Nineveh and wiped out that city completely. So this was God's prophecy coming true. And then it talks about, um, you know, and we'll pursue his enemies into darkness. In the Bible, um, there are examples of, you know, God, and the Bible tells us that God is light, and, and God and goodness is depicted as light, and evil is depicted as darkness. Um, if you'll turn to John chapter 3 and verses 19 to 21, we get a little better understanding of that. So John chapter 3, I'll read verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And so here John is describing that contrast between light and darkness. And the Assyrians love the darkness. And that's what it tells us. You know, if, if we don't love God and love Christ and follow him and seek the light and try to let the light of Christ shine through us in what we do in our lives, then we're loving darkness and we're making that choice. And that's the choice that the Assyrians made. Um, you know, when it talks about pursuing them um, into darkness, if you look at Matthew chapter 22 and verses 11 to 14. So Matthew 22 I'll read verses 11 to 14 in Matthew 22. But this is, this is the parable of the marriage feast where the king is going to get married and he sets this big banquet or marriage feast for the wedding. And he invites all the nobles and all the people. And so as they send out the invitations, all the people who are supposed to come are too busy. They have too many things to do. They just bought a piece of land. They're going to go do that or they have other work. And so all of the invitations that the king sends out get turned down. And so the king says to his servants, will go out into the streets and the byways and find other people who will come. And so all of these other common people are invited to the marriage feast. 
And during the feast is what I'm going to read about. This is um, in verses 11 to 14, is the king as he comes down. Because part of going to a wedding back in that time of the culture was you would have to wear your very nice, very best clothes. And because the king's inviting a lot of common people who don't have those nice clothes, he's providing those clothes for them. And you have to remember this parable to understand it the way God wants us to is um, what, what, what institution do we have that God uses to show the relationship between Christ and the church? Marriage. And so the Bible uses that. God uses the, the institution of marriage that he set up to show the relationship you know, here on earth between a man and a wife as it is between Christ, who's the bridegroom, and the church, who's the bride. Um, but to come to this wedding feast, you're supposed to have nice, clean clothes. Well, that follows through in salvation, where we, on our own, are sinful people, and you know, sin is represented by the stain of blood. But when we accept Christ as our Savior, we're washed clean of our sin. And so in the Bible, it will talk about how your garments are cleaned and white as snow. So the king comes down, and I'll pick up here. So this is Matthew 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is really symbolic of those who claim to be Christians but never accepted Christ as their Savior, never really took that into their heart. There wasn't that change in their heart. And, and the Bible and other parts of Scripture tell us that you know, during the judgment, people will come to Christ and say, don't you remember me? And he's going to say that he doesn't and tell them to go away. But here, you know, it's talking about cast them into the outer darkness. And, and at the end, when there's the great white throne judgment and people who are not believers, their name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, when it talks about being cast into outer darkness, that means separation from God the Father. God is light. If you look in Revelation, when new earth and new Jerusalem come, it tells you there's no sun because God is, is light. It is so light and bright. We don't need a sun to illuminate anything because the light of the Lord God Almighty will light everything. Well, if you are completely cut off from the presence of God who is light, where are you going to be? In complete darkness, in outer, you know, here they talk about outer darkness. You're going to be so far from the light, you won't be able to see the light. And so that's really just, you know, what Nahum is telling here, the um, Assyrians and letting the Jewish people know that when God punishes them, that punishment will be complete and final and absolute. And that's what God's judgment is. So we're going to um, move along here to Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And we'll see how the, the Lord will be vindicated before the nations. So Nahum chapter 3. Read verses 1 through 7. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. The charming one, the mistress of sorceries, 
who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? So this is just Nahum describing again the wickedness of the Assyrian people and what God's judgment will be for them. Most of the time when the Bible talks about woes, it's a prophetic thing that's happening. When you talk about the woes, as opposed to people experiencing the woes, it's the things that are going to come. And that's what this starts out with. This is woe to the bloody city. And so this really, this first three verses give us an idea of what the Assyrians were like and, and what the city of Nineveh was. That's what, you know, Nahum is calling Nineveh, you know, the bloody city because they were a bloodthirsty people. They tortured people. Um, they conquered. Um, they used deception to take over cities and countries, and then they would pillage them. They would take everything of value. They would kill everyone and take everything back to the city of Nineveh. Um, the Assyrians had lots of horsemen and chariots, and so that's where it's talking about um, the noise of the whip and the rattling of the wheel, the galloping of the horses and the bounding chariots. Is if you know, Imagine if you were in a city that the Assyrians were attacking and they send in their chariots, the sound of that with all of the, you know, there could be thousands of men and chariots and the horses and the wheels and all of that noise, and that would be very terrifying. But that was part of what the Assyrians wanted to do. And so if we look at that, it's really a description of the physical wickedness of the Assyrians. And that's, it's pretty bad, don't you think? But what's even worse is what Nahum talks about in verse 4, you know, where he says, All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one of the mistress of sorceries. Because what Nahum's talking about here is the, the moral and the um, sins of the Assyrian people which really, you know, if you think about the, the physical things that manifest themselves, you know, those things are bad enough, but they were morally bankrupt. They were ungodly people, and they inflicted all of that on all these other people, including God's people. And so these are the things that God is going to make them pay for. Um, you know, in verse 5, um, God is telling them he's going to make them a humiliation the Assyrian people were very prideful. They were very um, self-confident, and they were mighty warriors, and so they were depending on all of that physical skill and might that they had to protect themselves. And in a worldly way, if you think about it, that's pretty good protection, but does that provide them any protection against the Lord God Almighty? No, it doesn't. So I think that's another thing we could take away from this lesson is to not count on the protections of this world because they won't really save you from destruction. The only thing that really saves you from destruction is the Lord God Almighty. And you can be physically destroyed, but the very most important thing is that spiritually you're not destroyed, that spiritually you are alive, that you were born again through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, he just goes through here to tell the Assyrians, what God is going to do to them, that their, their destruction is going to be complete. 
And everyone, instead of fearing the Assyrians anymore, they're going to look on them and have pity because of the absolute way that God is going to destroy them. And, and you know, if we look toward the end times, if you read the last few chapters of Revelation, we see how God tells us that will play out for the world, where you know, we have the tribulation, and then um, there's Armageddon that ends tribulation. We have the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And then there's the final battle where Satan is defeated and he and his minions are thrown into the lake of fire for all time and eternity. Um, and, and that will be the final end for all of that. Here, the, the Assyrians are physically destroyed by God, but we also have to keep in mind that you know, we are all physical people here, but we have a soul inside us. And to keep in mind and remember that God has... You know, through his power and through the work of his son Christ on the cross, we're spiritually born again, and we will always be spiritually alive in that way as Christians. So, you know, thinking, when we look at these, I don't know what your observations are. I know when I read through some of these historical books of the Bible, and we think about back in the day when they had swords and shields and chariots, and that's how they fought battles, and they did all those things. Does that seem far removed from you? It does for me. And so when we try to, when I read these books and we, we see these things to try to bring that home to us, if we get down to it, if you look at the people of that time and you look at the people of our time at our core, how different are we? Not much different. People are people. And just like God gave the Assyrians through the preaching of Jonah the chance to repent, God gives all of us the chance to repent and to be saved and to be born again. And at some point, point, all of us in this room were sinners and were children of wrath and deserved God's wrath. As believers, we don't have to worry about that anymore, but I think it's important sometimes to look back at that. When we see these things and we think to ourselves how wicked the Assyrians were and they deserve all the punishment they get, if we got what we deserved, we would receive the same punishment. But because of the love of God and the work of Christ, we don't have to worry about that. And a good way to think through that and remember what that's about is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So I wanted to wrap up today. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, just to help us remember really who we are, but who we become once we're believers in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we could walk in them. So as you reflect back and think on the story of the Assyrians, and Jonah the prophet, and Nahum the prophet, God gave the Assyrians, they had that but God moment. Because when we read through this, the first few verses tell us who we were before we were saved. We were children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience. We followed the prince of the power of the air. That's what the Assyrians were doing. And Jonah, when he preached them the word of God and told them to repent, they had that choice, just like everybody on earth has that choice to decide what they want to do. Do you want to continue to follow yourself and the lusts of the flesh and do what the world wants you to do or are you going to turn so when you have those but god moments we need to take advantage of those and the assyrians did not and it took a while it was a hundred years but god's punishment came to them to help save his people and to remove that um, the trials that the assyrians were putting them through but i think that's when we look at you know old testament and new testament to remember those things why God, we've, we've been studying in the Gospel Projects, the Minor Prophets. Not everybody's favorite books are the Minor Prophets because some of these are pretty obscure. We don't really know much about Nahum other than he either was from the um, town of Elkosh or that's where he was called to be a prophet. But we know nothing else about Nahum other than what this prophecy book is. And this book really deals with just God's prophecy against the Assyrians in Nineveh. But it's important, and I think, like I said, we can draw those lessons and we can look at that and we can take comfort in God's protection from us. And it's a good reminder as we, as we study the Old Testament that we're the same people that they were. We can be subject to the same um, follies and bad choices and those kind of things. But just like where God was willing to let the Assyrians have a hundred years to get their act turned around, God's going to wait for us. And, you know, if we sin and we turn away from God and we walk down a very long path of sin, um, God loves us. And when we turn back to God and we turn around, God's right there. And he doesn't make us walk all the way back and do some kind of works or things. God's always right there and he's already forgiven us if we'll accept that forgiveness. Anybody have any questions or comments before we wrap up for the morning? Good point. So... Ruth said when she reads Nahum, it helps her understand Jonah and Jonah's frustration in that God didn't just punish them right then. Um, because they, they were, and, and the book of Nahum really helps us understand what, a, what a, a wicked and depraved people the Assyrians were. But it also helps us understand God and his mercy and why God was willing to give the Assyrians more time to see if they would turn around. Because remember last week when we talked about Jonah, it, you know, it was a, it took a person three days to walk across the entire city of Nineveh and God had told Jonah to go deliver this message that they needed to, to cease their wicked ways and turn back to him. And it was after his first day, so he's only a third of the way through the city giving this message to um, the Ninevites, that they changed their mind and they repented and they, they um, fasted and they put on sackcloth. They had the proper response to God. Um, when they heard that message. And, and it's another little thing you can take from this too, is that we, when we hear God, we need to be consistent in that. And so once we turn, we need to be consistent. So the, the Assyrians were not. They eventually went back to doing what they wanted to do and they were punished for that. That's a good point, Ruth.